Today on Peace Talks Radio, former Finnish President Marti Atasari, a mediation veteran who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2008. He shares with us stories and lessons from his more than 30 years of mediating conflicts and global hotspots. I think you have to address very candidly both parties and be able to make them think that some of their positions are totally unjustified. And later, another former president. We rebroadcast our visit with Jimmy Carter from 2002, the year he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And there was a big sign on the side of the road that I'll always remember, held up by little school children and said, Watch out, guinea worms. Here comes Jimmy Carter. And finally, a conversation with Frank Mink, a former skinhead who gave up on hate and embraced diversity. And I knew I looked evil on the outside. I just stole the swastika on my neck. So on Monday, after that Oklahoma City, this whole weekend of going through it, I went to the FBI. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we begin with a visit with the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize winner, former Finnish president and international mediator Marti Atasari. Atasari is best known for his peace negotiations in Kosovo, Indonesia, and Namibia, as it achieved its independence from South Africa in the 1990s. Mr. Atasari spoke to us from a hotel in Chicago during a visit to the U.S. in 2011, and he speculated on where and when he first sensed that he might have a knack for mediating difficult disputes. My old friends, when I meet them, remind me nowadays that when when I moved from another city in eastern Finland, actually it was an Olympic year, 1952, with my family, my father was in the military and we moved to the north, to Oulu. And I joined the local YMCA and I played basketball over there. I was 15 at that time. Anytime we had quarrels, the fellows still remind me that I was the one who always said, come on now, what are you doing now? Let's, let's continue playing and, and stop this nonsense. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my mediations career, according to my friends. And perhaps the fundamental in my background actually is that I'm an eternally displaced person because when Soviet Union attacked my country, 400,000 of us who lived in Karelia, which we lost in that war, had to be resettled elsewhere in Finland. And that gave me an enormous sensitivity because I lived with my mother in a totally unknown farming community and family who took very good care of us. But you never forget that you were actually their guest. So you learn to be very observant. You observed what was going on. And I I think those skills I found became extremely helpful. And I think it's good to, when you sit down with your, your friends or even your opponents, to try to find out what they really think, because they can put up a lot of facade, and, and when you learn to know them, you realize what issues are important and what are not. Right. Yeah, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Um, in commenting on your skills, 
Tufts University professor Eileen Babbitt said that uh, mediation is about sharing the skills with the parties who are in conflict so that they actually have an alternative other than violence to settle their differences. Could you take us into that a little bit, elaborate on the idea, and maybe share a story in your negotiation history when you you felt you were actually teaching a skill to opposing parties that they had never thought about using before? I give you an example of one one conflict which was very rewarding and where I'm still involved because we have to see that things will be done well and it's five over five years now since we we made the peace agreement when I was negotiating peace with, between Indonesian government and province of Aceh. I had never met a single Acehnese in my life when I was asked to, to mediate between them. So I said, first of all, I would like to see at least some of those who are fighting against the government. They happened to be living, the closest ones, actually part of their leadership lived in Sweden. There was a medical doctor and and another gentleman there. The leader couldn't come because he could not have returned to Sweden at that time. Now it has been possible for him to get the permission to do that. Because I wanted to see them before I, I even took the assignment. It was the first meeting. I could speak, speak Swedish to them. So there I was making peace in trying to start a peace process in Aceh, talk in, in Swedish. And they, they had already received Swedish citizenship. And I had to make, make it very clear to them, which perhaps helped them when we really started a month later. Because I said that government of Indonesia does not want to internationalize this issue. That's why UN is out. That's why I have been asked to help. And I, I told them also that if I were you, it doesn't make any sense to me that you would not listen. What is that the government is prepared to offer you? And then if you don't like it, you can say no thank you and continue fighting and die in Sweden. No, that wasn't perhaps the most polite way of starting your acquaintance, but during this process that then lasted from end of January to 15th of August when we signed the peace agreement, the compliment I, I got from one of the come delegation members was that at least with Ahtisari we know where we stand. And I took that as a compliment, though I think he was mainly referring that I, I spoke very plainly sometimes when it was needed. Problem very often in the negotiations is that, and I, I say that particularly with peace negotiations, is that we desperately try to keep the processes going. So we negotiate year after year, and I don't think it does make any sense. Because you, you have to see what are the essential issues. In the end, our peace agreement was only, I think it was seven A4 pages. I have never seen such a short peace agreement, but it contained everything that was needed to create the framework in which people can start a new life. Because then it has to be like a cover that you, you know that there's now a possibility for a new beginning. And, and many things had to be solved before that. But it is a new beginning, and, and it's a learning process which really starts when you sign the agreement and, and start afresh. Because people have very undemocratic experience from, 
from the fighting period. It's a most undemocratic phase for the liberation movements as well. And, and it's not democratic for governments either because they have behaved very often in a manner that, that in normal circumstances would be totally unacceptable. I'm now planning a trip to, to, to Indonesia in, in May with my colleagues simply to see that what is still from the agreement that hasn't been done, how could we do that so that the normal relationship between Aceh province and central government can be established. And then my only hope is that, as I have said to the parties, that I wouldn't like to come here except on holidays, but I will not talk anything about the implementation of peace agreement with you. We talk about something else then. Well, it, uh, what I draw from your story is that it sounds like uh, you believe that peace negotiations can be kept simple uh, to some degree as opposed to trying to make them too complex and protracted, and that sometimes you can mix empathy with being blunt and have a successful outcome. No, it depended very much also of the participants because the leader of the Indonesian delegation in these negotiations was... Hamid Avaludin, who was the Minister of, of, of Legal Affairs, and he proposed from the pin, beginning that let's have as a, as a basis for our talks uh, the dignity for all when we negotiate. He was a younger man compared to the leaders of the Free Atze movement, and that actually created the spirit in which we discussed, and I encouraged them to start talking to each other because previously they had had proximity talks. Uh, so somebody else was, was uh, in between them. I said, as quickly as possible, sit together. And we were in the same building throughout the day, and, and, and I encouraged them to speak. Because they have to be able to live together, not me. I'm still in Finland. Right. So it sounds like it's very important to have at least one of the sides bring up this issue of mutual respect to get things going at all. Yes, I, I think it was absolutely vital because it, it, the way he treated his elder colleagues on the other side of the table was absolutely vital. And then very often I hear that mediator has to be a neutral person, and I, I don't buy that argument at all. Uh, because there are issues very often that are important for one party, they are less important to the other. They may have their own issues that they absolutely need. So it's not a question very often in the negotiations that you try to find a compromise solution. You are trying to convince both sides that this is important for you. I give you an example. For free Aceh movement, it was important that Indonesia military did have nothing to do after peace agreement had been signed with the law and order issues, as they used to have when the fighting was going on. They were all over the place. We succeeded finally to get that. It was important that, that we didn't discuss independence. That was uh, not on the agenda and, and that we could maintain so uh, it was important for Indonesian government that come uh, forces were disarmed and their arms destroyed, which happened. 
So there are important issues for both sides, and slowly when you get these things done, how do you deal with the past injustices, which is one of the most difficult issue in the negotiations. I have been recently in Finland attending a number of meetings where this issue was discussed. And I, I, I say that <laughs> the difficult issue that the mediator has to decide is that what is more important to, to solve all the injustices had taken place over, let's say, a 30-year period, or make peace. Because sometimes it's as tough as that. You may be able to form a human rights court and, and have a truth and reconciliation commission, but I find that it's the most difficult issue to solve, actually, to get solution to atrocities, and particularly those who have... Very often it's women who have been suffering in the hands, hands of the military. It's a sort of eternal fight because I would rather make peace and make a new beginning so that nothing wrong that has happened in the past could be repeated and have mechanisms that would prevent that rather than try desperately to put those guilty parties into court and not have peace at all. But it's, it's, I, I don't like to be put into that situation, but unfortunately I have very often been there. Your negotiation on behalf of Namibia was a harrowing diplomatic involvement at times. Your, your life was in danger, and at times the parties there were quite far apart. I'm wondering if you could uh, tell a specific story of a turning point in those negotiations that underlines a specific conflict resolution skill that that paid off, or, or maybe a moment of courage displayed by one side or another in showing some good faith movement in that process? No, my, my involvement with Namibia was extremely long. Right, starting in 1977 and all the way through. Yes, I, I started formally. I, I joined UN in 77 as a UN commissioner for Namibia, but I, following year 78, I, I was made special representative of Secretary General, and then it lasted up to 1990. I must say that I was, I was 40 years of age when I joined the UN, and year after year went, and we could not make any progress. There was a plan which I was supposed to uh, lead to be implemented, and we didn't get, South Africa didn't allow us to, to start the implementation. And I was getting edgy, and I, I remember telling my Nigerian friend, uh, Dr. Peter Ono, who was the secretary, Deputy Secretary General of the African Organization of African Unity, and I said to Peter, that Peter, look, I'm wasting my time here, and, and we are getting nowhere. And he looked at me straight in the eye, eyes and said, Marty, you are not go, going anywhere. It's better to have a devil we know. So that perhaps explained what sort of relationship we had developed. But I think much more important role that my role was played by United States. First of all, uh, uh, Dan McHenry, who was first the deputy permanent representative in UN, and, and then later on when the administration changed, it was uh, Chester Crocker, who was the assistant secretary of state for African affairs. And I think Chester was the one who unlocked 
the accordion not in the end because he took up the issue or his government took up the issue of Cuban forces in Angola. It was a very unpopular move. No one liked it. It looked like we would be stuck with, uh, with the whole negotiation process. But that was what was de- demanded in that situation to get the South Africans to say, yes, now you and you can come. And then finally, after all these years, we, we managed to get to Namibia. Our role was to help in the process when it was stuck many times. And we were always present there to give assistance if, if needed. I traveled often to Angola, for instance, and South Africa too. Because we also had to learn to know each other, what we were. In South Africa, there was little trust on UN, UN's capability to be impartial in this process. Because we had recognized FAPO in UN as a sole and authentic representative. Angola was also concerned. But I, I think in the end, we, we got the confidence of everybody and, and, and we ran the operation in such a manner. But there were many situations. Now, of course, the worst situation I had to face was 1st of April. That's why I never liked the April Fool's Day after that. <laughs> because uh, that day, uh, Swapo forces were sent from Angola full of military gear to, to northern Angola, which was totally against the uh, agreement which we had negotiated. And South African troops were in the bases and, and we didn't have any other choice but to let the South Africans out of those to stop Swapo to come in. And, and uh, nearly 400 people were killed. It was an overkill from South African forces, but... It, it was very tough decisions to make at that time, but if we would have told the South Africans, no, you can't be there, it would have been the end of that exercise. I don't want anyone to go through that year. South Africans, after the change to a more democratic society in South Africa took place after Namibia got independence, said that they realized that if we were not successful in Namibia and got the process through in that year's period, they would have to wait for their democratic change for much, much longer. So they were, they were tied together. South, the old South Africa realized that you can talk to people whom they had branded as terrorists. I've heard you say that this work was your most important undertaking, in, in part because you believe it had that impact on the end of apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. Explain how Nelson Mandela's story continues to inspire you. I, I say every time when this question is asked that I learned to know him well before he became uh, president when he was released from Robben Island. I, I think he comes close to a saying that many people say that, that one should not say this, but, but I, I do say it because... If you are kept in, in, in prison for 26 years and you come out without any bitterness towards those who had put you there, and you might have think that it was totally unfairly that you were put to jail, or Robben Island for that matter, 
because he realized that that was the only way how, how you could start building a new South Africa. It also shows how important the role of one single human being is in, in these processes. And particularly, not the mediators so much, but <laughs> on the side of the parties who have to make an agreement. Therefore, when I was two, 2009 asked to join the elders group with Mandela and, and Archbishop Tutu, I wrote to Archbishop Tutu that this is one of the requests that I can't say no. In my office, I have only two paintings. They are both presents from from President Mandela to me and my wife, and I will not allow any other paintings on my walls. I have also a piece of rock from Robben Island, the chalk rock that he, he gave to me when I was visiting him when he was president. That reminds me every day that there's not a single problem in the world that cannot be solved. Marty Atasari is our guest. He's the 2008 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. More on his work and mediating philosophy when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online with all the episodes in our series at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and later we'll hear a 2002 conversation with former U.S. President and 2002 Nobel Peace Prize winner Jimmy Carter. It will be clear shortly what Carter's story has in common with our principal guest this hour, former Finnish President Marty Atasari, a mediation veteran who himself won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2008. In its announcement, the Norwegian Nobel Committee called Mr. Atasari, quote, an outstanding international mediator whose efforts have contributed to a more peaceful world and to fraternity between nations in Alfred Nobel's spirit. In addition to his work in Namibia, Kosovo, Indonesia, and Northern Ireland, Atasari has also done work in Iraq to help promote understanding between the nation's Sunni and Shiite populations. Atasari served as president of Finland for one term, 1994 to 2000, and then opted not to run again in order to create his own mediation organization, Crisis Management Initiative, which works to promote peace and crisis resolution. He spoke to us from a Chicago hotel suite during a 2011 visit he was making to the United States. You've said before that one of the things that uh, annoys you most is the tolerance of the international community for conflicts to become, as you say, frozen. Could you explain that term and, and tell me more about your resistance to that concept? Because if you look around in the world, we have, at least in, in Europe, 
frozen conflict, that's uh, Cyprus. We have in Asia, Kashmir. One could say that the Middle East conflict between Israel and Palestine is a frozen conflict. Uh, we are stuck also in places like Burma. There are a number of conflicts where international community, to my mind, is allowing these things to continue to be unsolved. And I think we should take a much more firm line in, in organizations like, like UN and in the Security Council so that we, we take a firm line and, and, and start pressing the parties to solve these conflicts because it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Well, with your 35-year history in negotiation, I'm wondering if you aren't drawn to get to the table of any of these seemingly intractable conflicts yourself. Do you find yourself putting peace plans together in your mind from the sidelines, say, in the Mideast, even if you haven't been at that particular table? I don't think that it, 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 it helps uh, to jump into these because, first of all, you have to get the main actors to not only those who are part, parties to the conflict, but those governments who have a possibility to influence the outcome. If you don't have the main actors supporting you, it's a totally hopeless task. And over the years, I have come to the conclusion from my own experience that it's very difficult to make peace without the United States. Because in every conflict that I have been involved, U.S. has had a role, either big or small. So you're saying that the United States has to lead in virtually all of these negotiations? Not necessarily lead, but be supportive. I, I take Kosovo as an example. We had the uh, so-called contact group where we had five Western members, United States, UK, France, Germany, Italy, and then Russia. I think that was absolutely vital to be able for me to sort out the developments while we were making progress and, and so keep them also well informed at the same time when Secretary General was keeping and I was keeping the uh, uh, Security Council well informed. But their firm support was absolutely vital. And, and I think in this case, United States, uh, United Kingdom and, and France were the most influential uh, countries on, on, on in this Western group. Mm -hmm. When budgets at home in countries around the world are stretched so thin, uh, how do governments outside of conflicting nations uh, make a convincing case for interventions? You've called on the international community to be so much more involved. Uh, sometimes those interventions are extremely costly to their own economies. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you make that case? No, I, I, if we solve the conflicts, we save money because the prolongation of these conflicts is the one that costs the money. If you look at Middle East uh, and, and look, look at the last uh, few, few tens of years uh, and, and look at the whole region, it has cost much more than the recent financial crisis in, in, in the world. So... <laughs> You, you, we have to be. Sometimes we have to be tough with our friends as well because these issues have to be solved. I, 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 because if you let these problems simmer, and I, I take the Middle East crisis particularly, 
we will never have the Western democracies and, and the Arab world, we will never have a natural relationship. Secondly, I am afraid that when, when we don't solve these problems, no one can guarantee the security of anybody in the region in the long run. So, so I, I think we have to be honest in analyzing these things. And, and I very strongly believe that, for instance, the Middle East majority on both sides wants peace. So, so we have to be better. Now, lately we have had, I think, very encouraging developments. If, we, if I look, for instance, North Africa and what is, has been happening, happening in Tunis, in Egypt, for instance, and even in, in Libya, even if it's much more complicated. Those in the streets of these uh, countries, they have proven now... Fi- finally to whole world that the values they have been demanding for themselves are universal values they are not western values freedom to speak all the human rights they are universal values as as uh, many of us have been arguing all along and secondly another historical development that for, for the first time security council was able to agree that international community had a responsibility to protect if the leaders of the countries are misbehaving vis-a-vis their citizens. These are historical developments, and I, I think we have, we have to keep this in mind when, when I hope that the same determination in the Security Council uh, can be achieved on, on other situations, uh, that, and not only in, in, in case of Libya. Some of the countries didn't vote in favor, but they abstained, so they didn't want to stop this process. And that, that I think, I, I appreciate. After leaving the Finnish presidency, you founded the Independent Crisis Management Initiative with the goal of developing and sustaining peace in troubled areas. Mm. This will remind Americans of the work of former President Jimmy Carter and his Carter Center. Was uh, Mr. Carter's initiative at all an inspiration for you? No, I had visited President Carter in Atlanta, so I knew what he had he had established. But of course, uh, uh, this this is uh, an organization in I would say in Finnish scale. I was aware of him, and I, I had admired how he he wanted to put his efforts to the work of peace and development. But uh, it was also a very practical uh, idea that when, when I, I didn't want to run for second term, in, 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 I wanted to continue doing what I had done before becoming a president. You've been very gracious with your time, and I have just one final question uh, that goes back to this notion of personal peacemaking. I know it's maybe a little hard to make this bridge, but if you had to pick some tips from your work as a mediator, to summarize, that our listeners might actually be able to apply to solving their own conflicts. What would you say? Uh, be honest with... You have to be an honest broker, not, not neutral. You have to be an honest broker that you really have to study the problem carefully. I w- emphasize that you have to find the time to study what are the real issues. And you have to be very candidly listening to to the parties. But then you have to start talking candidly also. Sometimes we want to be so nice in these processes, as I said, 
that we are not moving these things, whether it's a private conflict or, or conflict between within states or between states, I think you have to address very candidly uh, both parties and, and, and be able to make them think that some of their positions are totally unjustified. And do it also in a manner that people are not feeling offended. I think best compliment I, I got from an Eritrean, uh, we had become friends, he was an economist, was on a loan from the World, World Bank Group working there, and when I met him, and we were talking economic and humanitarian issues with his president and minister, he said, I would like to join you for a year to learn how to say difficult thing, things in a nice manner. That's the best compliment I have, I have had in my long career. Former Finnish President Marti Atasari, who has worked to end conflicts in troubled spots around the world for more than three decades. He won the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize. We spoke to him in 2011 when he was visiting Chicago in the United States. Since we spoke with Marti Atasari about the similarities between his circumstance, as a former president who started his own international mediation organization, and former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, we thought we'd rebroadcast our conversation with Jimmy Carter, spoke to me in 2002 on the occasion of his own winning of the Nobel Peace Prize and the 20th anniversary of the Carter Center. The the center's efforts to address hunger, uh, poor health, and oppression around the world obviously ring true to the humanitarian in each of us, but your books and talks make a connection between these desperate conditions and conflict and war in countries that can ultimately impact everyone on the globe. Could you talk about that a little bit and and offer some examples? Well, one of the things that I've learned in the last 20 years since I left the White House, much more clearly than I did when I was president, is that there's no way to separate, you know, a commitment to justice and peace and freedom and democracy and human rights and environmental equality and the alleviation of suffering. So that's why we have seen that in order to maintain peace in a country, you really have to deal with the most Uh, abject facets of life, because quite often when people have no hope and no self-respect and no prospect for a bare existence, they tend to turn to anger and begin a a civil war or lash out at their neighbors. So you, you can't separate the alleviation of suffering or environmental degradation where they lose their land and lose their streams from their inclination to despise their leaders or even to hate, you know, distant success stories like in America. So they're all interrelated. That's the best basic point. I wonder if you could recount one or two personal moments that are etched in your mind as emblematic of the good that the Carter Center has been able to do over 20 years. Any faces or encounters kind of stand out? Well, <clears throat> a number of them. For instance, guinea worm is one of the most horrible diseases ever known on Earth, and when we started to eradicate guinea worm, and this has been the Carter Center, one of the Carter Center's projects, uh, we we found three and a half million cases in 22 countries, uh, about 23,000 villages. We've been in every one of those villages, and taught the people what caused the disease, drinking filthy water, as a matter of fact, and, and how to correct it. And now we've cut that down from three and a half million to about 70,000, which, as you can see, is a 98% reduction. And so to go into a village and see people, maybe two-thirds of a total population, unable to walk around, 
lying on, on, on the ground with guinea worms coming out of their bodies and to teach them how to correct it and go back a year later and there will be zero guinea worm. And those people, for the rest of their lives, will never see another case of guinea worm. So this is a very gratifying thing. One time I was riding in a big entourage uh, with the leaders of a, of a state in Nigeria, and there was a big sign on the side of the road that I'll always remember, held up by little school children, and said, watch out, guinea worms, here comes Jimmy Carter. So, you know, that really is a kind of memorable thing that I remember. We've done the same thing with other diseases, including rubber blindness and trachoma that causes blindness. And so it's very uh, gratifying to me to go into those countries and see what a little bit of advice and a tiny bit of help will do to let them overcome their uh, terrible suffering. Well, and finally, you and Rosalind, as co-directors of the center, talk now about scaling back your active role. Is that a hard process for a couple of action people like you two? And, and what are your hopes for the ongoing future of the center then? Well, we've been doing that over a period of time anyway. Where I, I, Rosalind and I used to have to do everything at the Carter Center, you know, personnel, budgets, uh, planning, conferences, and everything else. Now other people do that for us. And we, for instance, in this hemisphere, we have 35 other presidents and prime ministers who have served like me in top positions who are part of the Carter Center uh, Council. And when I can't go to, say, Dominican Republic to help hold an honest election, I've got that array of other leaders in this hemisphere that can go and represent the Carter Center there. So it'll be a, a permanent organization. And uh, I think winning the Nobel Peace Prize for the work of the Carter Center, basically, is going to help strengthen that prospect for the future. President Jimmy Carter, thanks for your service to the world, and thanks for talking with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Good luck to you all. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter spoke with us in 2002. When we return, the tale of one young man's journey from hate to love. A former skinhead tells of his transformation in a moment on Peace Talks Radio after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can hear every episode in our series going back to 2003 online, as well as read partial transcripts and link to other content on our show topics, all at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. We'll close today's program with a story of a man who had devoted his young life to hate and addiction, and after a prison stint and a philosophical transformation, has lately been devoting his adult life to promotion of diversity and understanding. Frank Mink's own website says he became a skinhead at the age of 13, and by 18 he was a skinhead leader and neo-Nazi recruiter. 
In Illinois, his own cable access TV show was called The Reich. He was finally arrested and convicted on kidnapping and beating a member of a rival skinhead gang. While in prison, he became friends of men of different races that he used to hate. On release from prison, Mink tried to rejoin his old skinhead pals, but it wouldn't take. He didn't believe in principles of hate the group was built on. The Oklahoma City bombing of 1996 had a profound effect on him, as we'll hear, and he took a public stance against hate. He founded an organization called Harmony Through Hockey, and in 2010 he wrote a book, Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. Today he speaks across the country of tolerance, diversity, and mutual understanding. And in 2010 he spoke with reporter Elaine Baumgartel of KUNM in Albuquerque, who asked him to remember the first day he joined a Nazi skinhead group. Well, I've been hanging around them uh, up in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, and one of them was my cousin. And later on that night, we were after we were all hanging out, one of the older skinheads asked me, when, when was I going to shave my head? And I said, I would do it now. Uh, I was totally intrigued by them, and, and I liked hanging with them. I was 14. What was intriguing? Just... You know, I just come from a really tough background, uh, you know, stepfather that was kind of abusive mentally and physically. And then I moved to my father's, which was in an all-black section of Philadelphia, and, you know, just a lot of fights, a lot of trouble. So that summer, it was just, I mean, you couldn't have put a perfect kid in the perfect spot to do this. So per, in a sense, you had access to some some power and some safety that you hadn't had before. Right. And and also, that I mean, they were political. And even though I was 14, I kind of was in the war and politics and, you know, what is communism? What is this? You know, I just was into that stuff. And here, this is a group that fed me both things. So, How did your membership and participation, once you kind of officially became a member of the group, how did that make you feel about yourself and your place in society? Oh, it gave me complete purpose. And then as I started going to Bible studies that were teaching us how to hate through the Bible, now I'm not only have a purpose, but I have a God-given purpose. I really believe that. So, um, and, and that's when I started to recruit more kids into it. And, you know, and recruiting wasn't like I was anointed a recruiter. I just was always good at getting people into what I was doing, no matter what it was. Even when I was a little kid, if I was getting a new hockey team together or whatever it may be, I was always get a, good at getting people into what I was doing. So when your racial consciousness started to change when you were incarcerated, did it change subtly over time or was there like a eureka moment? No, no, not at first. There was a, it was a long time because even in prison, when I was leaving prison, I was still a skinhead. I was still an Aryan Nations, white Aryan resistance member. And I thought I was still was going to be for life. The friends that I was making in prison, that that was just prison. I, you know, I'm going to get out and things are going to go back to normal. I later on came to terms uh, with the black thing, the white thing, the Latino and the Asian. Like I kind of come to that conclusion that we were all equal, but I still wanted to hold on to this one last hatred. And that was for the Jews. Like I just because I didn't know any Jews. I'd never met any. So the easiest thing to do is you hate what you don't understand. And uh, the only thing I've ever been taught about the Jews was this you know, behind the scenes, evil empire of, of Israel and, you know, all this, you know, who runs the Federal Reserve? I'm 14 years old. People were talking to me about the Federal Reserve and I'm like, sure, sounds good to me. You know, what happened was a, a, a Jewish guy took me under his wing and taught me the antique business. And he knew that I was still a Nazi. I had a big swastika on my neck and, and uh, he wasn't like a, a religious Jewish guy, but he was definitely Jewish. 
one day he was give me the pep talk because I used to always say how stupid I was. Like it was just a thing I always said. I don't know why. You know, probably the inner self felt that way. And one day he just gave me this pep talk about how I'm the most street smartest person he's ever met. And I remember as he's talking to me, I had my Nazi boot, I had my Doc Martens, all my red laces in it. And we're in a truck driving through New Jersey. So there's not much to look at. You know, it's New Jersey. So you just kind of talk to each other. And as he kept talking to me about how street smart I was, and uh, I remember looking down at my boots and just being so embarrassed, just absolutely embarrassed. Here's this guy who just a great, great human being in my life. And, and I still hate him, you know? And so that was the day I kind of just came to terms with it. And when people say, you know, if racist people come and say, you know, what about this and racism and, you know, ain't you proud to be white and all this stuff. And I know that where that pride comes from is not really, it's really not a pride. It's more of a, we hate other people because of, well, God consistently, a higher power came into my life and it consistently kept proving that belief wrong to me. He kept putting people in my life at the wrong and the right times and saying, Frank, judge now. Like, you're the biggest screw-up I got going on this earth. And I, I was. I was a criminal. I was a thug. I was a liar. I was all that stuff. And uh, and so God finally slapped me for the last time upside the head. So when people say we have become a post-racial society, we in the U.S. have elected a black president, and that indicates that racism is no longer a problem. Anyone can succeed. <laughs> I, you know, it is a. We are moving forward. We we definitely are moving forward. Uh, I think that there's always still going to be. I, I said it in us and in them. And when people say, "Well, you know," what I hear a lot on diversity when I go to do these diversity weeks, colleges will bring me in. Two things I hear. Is, one, I hear the diversity program is all the same thing. Let's teach all the white kids. Let's get all the white kids in here. And we're going to teach them about, you know, Martin Luther King and George Washington Carver. So we're going to jam peanut butter down these kids' throats and say, accept this, accept this. That's not going to work. It, it's, they've tried it. It's not going to work. So what works? What works is when you get, you know, just use it as an example, you get groups of males of all different races. You get them in a room. And you say, who here's dealt with their family in alcoholism or addiction? And, you know, you, you take these little surveys. And I'm going to tell you right now that a black guy and a white guy whose father, no matter which father was, drank too many 40 ounces or drank too much scotch, that kid knows that pain of my dad's going to break a promise. He's not going to come home tonight. That's true diversity we us dealing with the same thing in our lives you know whose mother's dealt with uh breast cancer you know who knows that pain pain is what brings people together you know if i'm out somewhere and i just broke up with my girlfriend and i want to woe is me and all my friends are like oh you know forget her you know but one a guy who maybe not even the same color says i'm going through the same thing i'm going to talk to that guy because i want to know what he's doing to stop feeling the same pain that i'm feeling that's true diversity. And then the second thing you hear from people, and you hear this a lot from, from white people, is when are they going to give up on the slavery thing? I wasn't even here then. I, my family wasn't even here then. Well, I like to say it's, it's not so much slavery as it was like the 50s and the 60s when we were spraying fire hoses at people and dogs on each other. And, and you might not have had nothing to do with that. But until that, and this is sad to say, until that generations die out that went through that, there's still going to be this uh, tussle. A little um and and hopefully we're going to get by that and get through it and and 
You know, people can say, hey, we were wrong in this part. And, uh, you know, like where I went to school, you know, black kids used to beat us up all the time because we were, I went to an almost all black school. And until, and I finally one day got to run into a guy I went to school with and he apologized. He's like, yeah, you know, because I was telling him, I was like, man, I used to get my butt whooped all the time. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, you know, we all did it. I'm sorry, you know. And so until there's dialogue, that's when you're going to start really having some some closure on things and, and move forward. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you ran into somebody that, that you had beaten up? Yeah, I got to run into, and this was a complete God thing. I was in St. Louis, and while I was there, I got to run into the guy that I kidnapped that I went to prison for. He was just sitting there. I mean, out of the blue. Where were you? I went into this bar, and I think it was called O'Toole's. It's in downtown St. Louis. And I was trying not to drink at the time, so I was drinking O'Doul's, which doesn't work, by the way, if anyone's a recovering alcoholic. Don't try the (laughs) non-alcoholic beer. So uh, anyway, I was just starting to try and get sober at the time. So I'm drinking these O'Doul's, and I look across, and, and there he is. So I keep looking, and I finally got up enough courage and uh, not even alcohol courage. This was just real God-given courage. And I went over, and I said, hey, is your name such and such? And he said, yeah. And I looked different at the time. So he said, yeah, I'm him. I said, you used to be a a sharp skinhead? And he kind of pulled away from me. And as soon as he did, he kind of looked at me, and I said, dude, have you ever been kidnapped? And he just said, oh, my God, it's you. He's like, I just seen you because I just did this MTV special like a couple of weeks before then. And he's like, I seen you on MTV. He's like, great work, you know. And I was like, well, first off, before you give me any praise, I need to make an amends right now. And I and I made my amends. And he said, I oh, don't worry about it. You know, stuff happens. You know, you know. And I just said, you know, any way I can make it right. And he just, no, just keep doing what you're doing. And we hung out for maybe six hours in St. Louis. So I had that moment. What did that what did that do for you as you moved forward? Uh, it took a weight off my shoulders. With almost all amends that you make towards people or whenever you can admit that you're wrong, um, when you know in your heart you're wrong, like your shoulders just loosen up. You know, the weight of the world comes off. It's just ah, uh, what an experience, you know? And and even at the moment when you're making that amends or making an apology to somebody, you, you kinda are embarrassed or all the feelings and emotions that go through with admitting that you're wrong. But once it's over and the person either accepts or doesn't accept, sometimes you get, I get people that don't accept my amends. Um, but I know I did my part, you know, and, and when people say, well, what do you do with someone doesn't make fit that amends? And they say, you know, go screw yourself. Anyway, I know that uh, what another person thinks of me is none of my business now. What I think of myself and what I think of that person is all my business. And if I can live that way, then, then I'm okay. I, I try to believe that, you know. So we we just recently saw the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. When that happened, do you remember where you were? Oh, absolutely. Talk to me about how the bombing affected you. Um, you know, I, I remember where I was. I was in a grocery store in South Philly, and the guy behind the counter was watching TV, and he wasn't, like, paying attention to me. So I was like, hey, you know, just trying to get his attention. I said, what's going on, you know? And he said, a bomb, someone blew up a building in, in Oklahoma. And, you know, first, like everyone, oh, terrorists, you know, how I went home, I got my sandwich, I went home, and as I was eating it, I started listening to the news because it was on every news channel at the time. There wasn't 24, I didn't have 24-hour news. It was just normal news, and and it just overwhelmingly came over me. 
this is the movement. Like, I just know it. it How was, did you know? Because of the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries talks about doing almost the same exact type of thing. And I just knew. I don't know. It was like a spider sense. It just said, hey, here's the movement. And I've been out of the movement now for about a year. And so that whole weekend, I kept watching the pictures. And there's this picture of this little girl in this guy's arms. Very famous photograph. Yeah, yeah. And she's dead. And she's, and I didn't see my daughter at the time. And so I'm just full of emotions over it, all this and this, you know, this, this, this picture. And I felt so evil, even though I was out of it, I just felt evil on the inside. And I knew I looked evil on the outside. I just saw the swastika on my neck. So on Monday after the Oklahoma city, this whole weekend of going through it, I went to the FBI and said, Hey, I need to talk to somebody. And they, they sat and listened to me and I didn't have any information. I wasn't there to rat on anybody. I didn't know Timothy McVeigh, but I knew I wanted to be a Timothy McVeigh when I was in the movement. That's how hard I believed. And now I've seen the end result. So maybe I was a fence, a guy on the fence all my whole life. I don't know, but I've seen the end result of that dead little girl. And, uh, and I talked for a couple of days with them and then they said, Hey, you, you know, thanks for coming in. I didn't, again, didn't have anything criminal. And they said, why don't you go to a civil rights organization? So I went to the ADL because they had done some work together. And, and the ADL is an information group. The anti-defamation. Anti, yeah. And I went met with them and met in a little hotel lobby in Center City, Philly. It was all cloak and dagger-like, you know. And I talked to these guys about my life, and I did the same thing. And what happened was they were testing me. I remember they were asking me about incidents. Was I there when so-and-so got stabbed in, in a beating or was you not, you know, and I was honest. I was like, no, I wasn't there. Or yes, I was there. And I think they knew the answers to the questions. They were just seeing if I was going to do this. Oh, I was there, but I didn't do anything. Or, oh, I was. They were looking to see whether you were owning up to your involvement in that, these previous. And I think they wanted to make sure I wasn't going to be all bravo about it. And, oh, I was always there. And I, you know, I was just, hey, I was there or I wasn't. And so, so that it started with that picture. And that's how I started speaking. And then that's to move forward with that. I didn't want to be the guy that just went around and said, oh, look at me. Look how great I am. I don't do bad things anymore. Like I wanted to continue to do good things. So I started Harmony Through Hockey. And so Harmony Through Hockey is this program that brings a diverse group of urban kids together mm-hmm. through hockey. Yeah. I mean, when I think of hockey, I think of working, working class white guys. Yeah. Right. And yep. so talk to me a little bit about how does Harmony for Hockey change that dynamic? Well, it does. And, and the good thing is in Canada, there's a lot of different race people that play hockey and it's coming up through America. I mean, there's, you know, you just see you know, there's uh, Mike Greer, who's, you know, African-American black guy who plays hockey. There there are some coming up, but I think, you know, for two things, one is I. I love just putting all these kids in hockey equipment because when I was a kid, I couldn't afford ice hockey equipment, and now I'm getting it for free. And so I, there's a socioeconomic aspect too. Absolutely. It's yeah. the most, one of the most expensive sports to play. Football, you can get it and you can go play on the grass. Hockey, you have to rent ice time. You have to get all this stuff together. It's, it's, it's Skates. A, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a huge commitment. How do the kids react? I mean, you know, kids just want to have fun. It wasn't, I mean, it's not rocket science on my part. I wasn't a genius for coming out with this program. It was easy. Um, you know, and you make rules, and rules are the first rule is you can't laugh at the kids. You can't laugh at a kid who falls down. 
And of course, the first couple of weeks, everyone's going to laugh because it's funny. It is when these kids are first running out of skate and they fall and their sticks go flying in the Pull air. Pull a Bambi, right? Yeah, you know what I mean? Their <laughs> gloves are flying off. I mean, it's you. even I have to hold back my laugh. But what you start seeing is you start seeing the leaders in the group of the kids. Hey, don't forget, don't laugh. By two, three weeks later, because people can say, hey, don't laugh, don't laugh. You know, then, and I got to run the program out in where I live now when I was living in Iowa. So I got to do this with the uh, American Hockey League, and I got to run it all on my own. And I made up little tasks that they would have to do, like go home and do something nice for somebody and don't tell them you did it. That's the hardest job. Doing something nice for someone and getting praise for it's great. But when you can't get that praise, oh, do you, the whole week, every time your grandfather says, man, I wonder who cleaned up my yard. You want to, oh, I, I did it. I, you know, but you can't. And so they come back and they would tell me what they did. And, you know, the good thing is you would hear stuff like my grandfather was cleaning out his gutters. And while he went around the back of the house, I everyone cleaned up the mess. Great job. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Then another kid said, well, when my mom got home, I hurried up and brought it on all the groceries. And I said, no, you're supposed to do that. Go home and do something else, you know. So I kind of was giving them this thing like you need to do that. And then the other tasks were go home and tell someone that lives in your house three, three reasons why you love them. Just, you know, just have that moment. And uh, so they come home and they come back to practice next week. I say, so what you tell? And they all come up. I told my sister I love her. She's funny. And I said, okay, now go home and ask three reasons why they love you and come back and tell me. So we do little things that kind of helps build character, I think. So, yeah. you know. Frank Mink, thanks very much for taking Thank the time to speak with Thank me today. You. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Frank Mink is author of the book Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. He spoke to Elaine Baumgartel of KUNM in Albuquerque in 2010. And thanks to Elaine Baumgartel for making that interview available to Peace Talks Radio. You can find links to more information about all of the guests on this program today at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast in our newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. So please consider a donation. Go to peacetalksradio.com. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, Sixth Man Productions, presenters of the singer-songwriter Kayamo Cruise, online at kayamo.com, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.